This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. 165th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is where we're up to in the show. If this is your first episode of One Heat Minute, welcome. You literally have a lot to catch up on. Uh, for those of you who have been along this journey thank you so much the penultimate minute of the movie is what follows and you've seen the murderer's row of guests literally from 1 through to 164 and today I decided to I decided to reach out to a former guest on the show as I have done um, uh, sometimes because I think that they you know, I, I want them to come back and be involved. And this particular guest I reached out to because as I've been doing this project, it's been a deeply creatively fulfilling thing. And to engage with some of the most incredible people in the world of film and criticism, whether they're creatives, federal police detectives as well along this journey. Um, uh, you know, I've met, I've met and talked to some of my heroes, um, but... I've felt in this project, and I don't know about you guys, and if you have listened to all 165 episodes, you might think so, but I feel like this movie has brought the very best out in me. So with that in mind, I've been reading my current guest stuff recently, and I just think, holy shit, there are some people out there who are just hitting their stride and hitting the top of their game. And the guest that I chose today is a guy whose stuff that I read and admire and uh, who I interact with, and I go, this guy is good. He does this sharp. He does that sharp. And I thought, there's probably not anyone better to get on for this moment. Two of us maybe hitting our strides at the same time. Um, across the other sides of the world, ladies and gentlemen, it's the LA contributing writer for La, uh, for La Familia Film, and now an editor on what I think is the greatest independent film publication out there, Brightwall Dark Room, at A Heart of Gold on Twitter, Travis Woods, welcome to the 165th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus with me, buddy. Oh, boy. I, I don't know what to be more excited about right now. The fact that we're on this minute or how well you butter me up before each show. <laughs> uh, and and you, you, you so inflate my, my sense of self and ego that I'm willing to just uh, expound for hours on heat because everything I... I think I feel like everything I say now is gold uh, <laughs> because of the intro you give me. So bless your heart. Um, wow, this this is is the end. This is, this is it. This we're is, here. We're, it's we are right here. It's over. And like I keep thinking of you. Um, <laughs> I keep thinking of you when this this whole thing wraps up. You're just you really are just going to be standing there like uh, like Hannah, just kind of. That those owlish eyes peering into the middle distance of the darkness, just realizing it's over, and you're just standing there as uh, as Moby starts to play, <laughs> and uh, 
you know, like like Hannah, you're standing there going, well, what now? And um, oof, I, I, I will say, I think as for what now, uh, you know, we do know that there is a, a Heat prequel novel coming. <laughs> we and, sure do. Um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> and by the time you li- and by the time you're listening to this, you would have heard Reed Coleman, the author of said novel, yeah. has been on One Heat Minute. And gosh, I I, I just I, I think you'd be really hurting a lot of people uh, <laughs> if you didn't if you weren't willing to go out there and do a One Heat page podcast <laughs> and just keep this going for us, Blake. Uh, just 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 a little while longer. Burn through the book, and maybe if we're still need, if we're still in need, redo one heat minute, but just do like the man commentary track, <laughs> and just do one heat minute for the commentary track because it's a great commentary. Um, but just just don't take this away from us, not yet, because like uh, I'm, make, I'm not ready. I will make the commitment to you now, Travis, that I haven't actually said to anyone yet. If there's a heat prequel movie, I'll bring back the show. <laughs> A heat oh, prequel God. movie. I'll bring back the show. The book I will read voraciously, and uh, and you know having read on the show so far to talk about little bits and pieces. Obviously, you can't. There would be no spoilers in what you heard, but just us talking about the things that resonated with him from the film and would have been carried through to the way he approached it. Um, if there's a heat prequel movie, and particularly if the great man himself is directing it, I I think I I think I would absolutely extend the show but that's that's a caveat for everyone out there that i would do that you know i think you're teasing me blake and you know we're we're sitting here like a couple of fellas fellas. and i do what i gotta do and you know now that we've been face to face on skype (laughs) if i'm there and i gotta make you record another podcast (laughs) i won't like it but i tell you if it's between you and some poor bastard whose life you're going to make one heat minute less, Blake, you are going down. Well, you got to. Trav, there's a flip side to that coin. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What if you do got me boxed in and I have to do another Michael Mann movie minute by minute? I'm just letting you know if it's, if it's a heat prequel novel, a heat prequel sequel film, The Godfather Part 2, if you will, to heat. I will not hesitate. Not for a second. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I can't imagine anyone still listening after this. No. <laughs> I think if you've listened to 164 episodes of this show, that shit is your jam. That shit is your jam. <laughs> and I hope that it is. I hope you guys are enjoying the show. Well, man, look, it's, um, as we said, it's the penultimate minute. Let's Let's dive into... Wow, it's an it's it's the last whole minute pre credits. There's one more minute to go. It's about fifty seconds of footage before we hit credits. Um, and Travis and I are going to dive into this. This for all the folks who are listening. We've said it a couple of times, but this minute is the minute that Michael Mann unlocked in the script. It's the minute that he found that literally unlocked the entire movie for him. He needed this ending, and there's really only other one film that I've ever heard of that but they had to find it they had to find it in the process of making it to make it you know what ultimately is one of the, the greatest movies ever made is Apocalypse Now like finding mm. 
finding the osmosis of a buffalo dying as part of a native tribe's, you know, uh, local custom. And and Francis Ford Coppola in his maddened, you know, state of lunacy, 300 days worth of filming, seeing that unlocked the poetry of symmetry in the ending of that movie. And I think what's so incredible is that in the same way, really in that sort of same beautiful um, Jungian um, sort of twin uh, thing we've got going on here, these echoes, um, uh, Heat does a very similar thing. Apocalypse Now, one of my favorite movies of all time too, just uh, just undeniable. Um, so we're going to watch this minute together. We're going to hear some of that swelling score. We're going to hear an amazing interaction, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. That just got me. I know. I, I feel like we need to have a good cry before we jump <laughs> jump into this. Like maybe pause this and just give us a moment to uh, with the uh, God, God's uh, God moving over the face of the waters. Is that the name of that Moby song? Yeah, it is. Yeah, oh, that's that magic. Just, I just I thought that I would be able to hold it together. <laughs> oh boy, guys, Flake is moved right now. Ah. Uh, God, I'm going to drink some ungodly coffee. strong coffee just to get my shit back together. Wow, that's a minute. Is that not ain't a that minute? Sky, ain't that Sky Chief something? <laughs> oh. Well, oh, uh, while you compose yourself, I'll, I'll hop in. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks for helping. <laughs> thanks for helping. Uh, well, before we actually dive in, dive in, um, it's interesting to note um, for a story that's about the cat and mouse chase between the furthest extremes of law and the first furthest extremes of criminality that a similar real life story was going on as this was being filmed this was filmed uh this sequence was filmed the week that the unabomber threatened to blow up lax wow um this was filmed on the eastern tarmac in june of 95 when uh when he threatened to blow up a plane that was going to take off uh, from LAX, and uh, because of that, I, I don't know. I, I don't recall anything in the in the scripts that I've seen online that there was any specific sequences set inside of any cargo holds or um, any hangars or anything like that. But um, because of because of his threat against the against LAX, uh, the sh- all of the heat cast and crew in the shooting had to take place very specifically outside. Yeah. Uh, in the areas around the tarmac and whether that was planned or not i absolutely love that yeah because i think thematically 
it's so pure that this film, which is like the apotheosis <laughs> of urban crime films, its tagline was a Los Angeles crime saga. <laughs> uh, the fact that that this most urban of crime films would climax not in the streets or in a bank downtown or at the peak of some you know LA high rise, but that rather it would end here in the weeds and the shadows. And I I think that is so important yeah. because for two major thematic reasons. Uh, the first being, you know, in, in the universe of this film, these two men are the only two men alike one another in the world of this film. And for them to have their final confrontation where they try to kill each other in the darkness as the city moves on around them without them and it roars and flies above them, you know, and is oblivious, the city is oblivious to this incredible drama that's happening beneath its surface. And the fact that these two men are, they're experiencing and going through what will, what we will see to be the, the heightened experience of both of their lives. Um, and because they are so unique and alike, they are the only two to bear witness that can bear witness to it. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess that's, but within the, in the, within the world of the film, this can't take place in the city proper. Um, it takes place in the closest thing that LA has to rurality. Um, <laughs> yes. Where these two men, they have to be alone with one another for their stories to end. And again, like only they can witness it. And I feel like that's so right. And so it couldn't end any other way. They could, this couldn't end in a gunfight or a car chase no. uh, down La Brea or, you know, a shootout on Venice Boulevard. It, it, it couldn't, it had to end with, so that when it was over, whoever was still alive would have to be totally alone in the universe in the closest thing that LA has to emptiness. <laughs> yes. And, um, and then the other reason I think this works is because this is a, like a return to, we're going to get real pretentious here. This is what happens when you get emotional. I'm going to take over. <laughs> Wax and pretentious. But um, this return to nature sur surrounded by modernity, it's like the film is returning to the central idea that created it. Yes. Uh, Hannah killing Macaulay is, as you said, the idea that sparked this film for man, according to man, um, based on the, the real Macaulay being killed by what's his name? Chuck, Chuck Adamson, Chuck the Chicago Adamson. cop, yep. uh, in the front, in someone's front yard after a supermarket heist in 64. And, you know, as true fans know, they had coffee in a diner in like 1963, the year beforehand. And, um, I know I mentioned this on my last episode, but I have to assume that no one made it that far into it, <laughs> uh, because it just went on and on and on. The, um, this scene is Heat's Big Bang. Yeah. Uh, and like like the Big Bang in our own universe, all of the star stuff and stardust of this scene, of this final moment between these two men, these two men, it's blown back throughout the entire film. And because of that, because the film was reverse engineered with this as its creative starting point, everything leads back from the very from the opening scenes, everything leads to this moment from 
Wayne grow and all the people he kills to Justine and Edie to Donald Breeden and Van Zandt and his offshore accounts and uh, <laughs> from, from the Bob's Big Boy all the way to uh, the TV man with his little TV shopping cart thing uh, <laughs> at the opening 211. They all feed directly into this moment to this to this return to the to the story's initial nature and this um, this. Uh, well, this duality of predator and prey that sparked man's fascination with the story is like it's like the double helix yes. of this movie's DNA. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how there could possibly be a better ending than you know. It seems like such a weirdly random one when you think about it. Although I guess if you're going to have an L.A. movie, you have to have a uh, – if you're going to make the definitive L.A. movie, you have to have something happen at LAX. But I can't imagine anyone else would be sharp enough to to think, well, what if what if they just run around in a field <laughs> out, outside outside uh, the international terminal for LAX? What, what if they just run around in the field? And that's, that's why we're still talking about this film. That's why we still talk about Michael Mann is – no one else would have done that, and yet it's so, in retrospect, it is so right that there could have been no other ending for this film and no other Big Bang to generate this film. Yeah, it's, um, like, there's so much to comment on there, and thank you for vamping while I was uh, composing myself. Um, <laughs> Man is also fascinated, and this is something that, you know, you guys might have heard me talk about with Reed Coleman, is he's fascinated with spaces that are both inside and outside. And so we've seen that in, particularly in this movie, in a lot of the, a lot of Neil, you know, like Neil's, lit, you know, the, the great um, Charlie Hebdo film critic and documentarian um, uh, Jean-Baptiste Theray calls, he wrote a, a, a feature on um, Michael Mann's work and he called it Aquarium Syndrome. And so um, he talked about how man is preoccupied with inside and outside spaces. So with Neil is like, Neil's is the quintessential space, right? It's like, it literally is like an aquarium that we can look in, you know, even yeah. in the urban and the unbelievable cityscape, violent, you know, uh, centerpiece of this movie. What's so wonderful about it is that it actually almost feels interior because the sound is reverberating off of the buildings and we're in there and we're trapped and it's, it's, it has a lot of those qualities of being trapped inside as well. And in this moment too, I think you, you nailed it, Trav, talking about the, you know, that this is, it's elemental because it's going back to nature. It's a shadow dance. It's in a field. It's, the, it's, it's sort of the birth of this idea. It's where it kind of emerges out of the swamp and becomes the idea that then blows the stardust back into the universe of this movie. Um, but it also has this, despite its scope and scale, it's, it does feel like it's inside. Like it's, you know, there's ducking around corners and these weird little containers or whatever the hell they are. These weird containers are all there. And also... Yeah, power generators and containers and all through that whole running as they're going through, there's all these little obstacles. But the the wonderful thing as well is that, you know, like you said, a quintessential LA movie needs to have some relationship with LAX because it's a transient space. You know, people yeah. are coming from other places. And so it, it just feels like someone who is trying to make a statement about LA and this this nature of people not being from there. Like no character that we've seen 
has had any exclusive relationship with this city. We've got people who are from New Jersey, and then they're in Nevada, and then they're in LA. And we've got people who are from Chicago, and then they're all bouncing around different prison districts, yeah. and they're here. We've got, you know, Vincent himself was in. He took so and so down in Chicago, and then he came to. Then he came to this. So, I just and the think film I'll, even begins with my colleague stepping off a train. Yes into the city proper yeah it's like everything about it is like this is a transient space with people from other places no one's really from here or that's at least man's sort of essay on it and so yeah you're so right it's like thematically it's perfect but also i think it's that's where you find like the genius of like a really great filmmaker is when they they choose a space and then we get to sort of appraise it and say you know yes he synthesized his, this idea better than any other space in this movie. Yes, we've we've focused the scale down from all this, you know, all this other crap that's going on just down to what this movie is, which is cat and mouse, shadow versus shadow, in mm-hmm. in a space there. But then you go, well, also it doesn't seem to make sense. But to your point, we're still discussing it because there's no movie that really in the, especially in this genre that's had the wherewithal to end like this here in this space in LA where where it's either you fly off to another destination and you escape but or you're anchored here and you die here because like you've lived by the LA way and you've died by it with Neil McCauley and in it's yeah I'm 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 just shocked because now no one can even not not only could someone not have the idea they could certainly have the idea but in a post 9/11 world it's just impossible for anyone to even be allowed to pursue something <laughs> to use this space for all that it's worth again so it's like this weird thing of like it happened once in this moment the best way possible no one touched it after that because it didn't want to feel like they were being repetitious and then the state of the world changed so that it can't happen so now it just sits in this rarefied position above you know, tangent, tangentially away from other things. So no one can reach it. I mean, exactly. Yes. And that, that's, that's perfect. And, you know, speaking of, of spaces, as you said, um, and to kind of go back a little bit to what I was saying, he found the one place, one of the few places in Los Angeles that is not overcrowded. Yes. Like he found a location because of it, because of the nature of its, because of its restricted nature these two men could be alone. He found the one place in Los Angeles where you can actually be alone yes. and be, aside from the roar of airplanes, uh, you can be relatively undisturbed. And he erases the presence of everyone else. In this moment, there is no Justine. There is no Edie. There's no Shaherlises. There is there's no, uh, there's no victims uh, with um, with black eyeballs from yeah. uh, from the eight images staring back at them, there are no lights from Fiji. There are only these two men, and th- this ending gets to the heart of what this whole. Despite the fact that this movie is such an amazing tapestry of lives and moments cascading together into this, you know, this uber narrative, it really is just about. This and I'm not like I'm, you know, reinventing the wheel here. I know this is an obvious statement, but this is a this is very obviously about a predator and prey relationship between these incredibly similar men who are who are only seemingly alive when they are occupying the role of predator and prey. 
you know, all I am is what I'm going after. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because this is what they're meant to do. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people also, you know, will, you know, a lot of people and uh, critics and fans and whatnot will, will try to draw a line between the very kind of cold and analytical style of Jean-Pierre Melville. Yes. And his existentialist criminals and cops with uh, Michael Manns. But I think if the truest connection between these two filmmakers is uh, their fascination with characters who are inseparable from whatever, it, whatever the thing is that they do. Yes. Whatever their, whatever their job is, whatever they've given themselves over to uh, the greatest charge, the greatest electric charge um, that life gives these characters is when they are living those roles and performing those duties to their fullest. Hannah chasing and Macaulay knowing that he's being chased and thus operating accordingly. Predator yes. and prey. Yeah. And as nearly every other episode before me has pointed out <laughs> and man has made clear, uh, there is something in the, the pathology and the psychology of these two men that makes them so alike beyond just this predator prey relationship uh you know moments big and small in the film what we're i'm as i warned you beforehand and i'm going to warn everyone now we're going to go all over the place with this, episode. <laughs> this is our big bang episode so we get to jump all over the place um but moments big and small in the film as you and other uh guests and fans have located in the film uh point to this ending and to the the similarities that drive these two men beyond their their predator and prey relationship you know both are marines yes and both try to have relationships that run counter to their performance to their performances as their best selves that actually kind of slow them down and yet they seem compelled to engage in um almost instinctually um but most especially the fact that they both have these lone wolf tendencies in order to exercise their best abilities. And I think that the thing that, that most interests me about these two men is the recognition of each other's skill levels. You know, you do this sharp, you do that sharp. Look how guy this look how sharp this guy is to figure out. And then you know Macaulay, uh LAPD, gee what, where the fuck did this heat come from? There is this this mutual recognition that they are each the best at what they do. But also that mutual acknowledgement of the loneliness that that engenders, regardless of whether Macaulay will cop to it or not when he's talking to Edie. I think these are two profoundly lonely men who the thing that makes them the best is also the thing that isolates them. And I think that that is ultimately what it like you know what what attracts these two men together is they recognize oh my god you're the other you're the only other one that would get this like if i you know i can't go to a shrink and i i can't tell him about tell him or her about this i can't go to the bar and talk about this like you're the only one without even saying anything you're the only one that knows what this is and what what this is like and you know you know i think about and, when and and let's anchor that to this minute just for one second is to say just to, to add to your point the heartbreak that's on Vincent Hanna's face when he's walking up to Neil in this minute. He just so, gained and lost the one man he, that will ever understand what, <laughs> what, he did, what his life is. And Neil looking at him and appraising him and 
like we talk about honest moments. We've talked about honest moments in the film coming up. And there's a mo- like when Neil says, I told you I was never going back. And vi- like, I can't imagine him saying that out loud to any human being alive. I told you I was never going back in that moment. And Vincent goes, there's like a, there's, there's nothing that needs to be said other than, yeah. Yeah. Like, we knew this was going to happen. And, and to, your, to your point, it's like, yeah. And in that exchange, it's like they understand each other better than anyone else in this, in this universe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it makes me think of the diner scene when he's telling, and, and maybe certainly besides this one, the most intimate moment in the entire film. You know, we've seen a husband and wife make love in this movie, and it has nothing close to the intimacy <laughs> of either this ending or the scene in the diner when um, when Hannah is talking about his recurring dream, and he's talking about all the victims of the crimes that he couldn't solve in time. And, you know, Macaulay's like, no talk, don't say anything. And the almost disdainful way Hannah says, they, they've got nothing to say to me. And I, I, there's nothing that needs to be said between these two, between these victims and the cop who who tries to avenge them. And I felt that so much in uh, in that in that final moment where, what else can Hannah say? But yeah, I, there's nothing. But this like, is the, the chance. To but this is the chance, Travis. That's what's so beautiful about your point. It's like this is the chance. Someone in this universe, one of these victims, gets to talk to him. Like, they get to exchange with him. They, they don't say anything. But right now, one of them does. They say, I told you I was never going back. Like, we knew this was going to happen. This was faded. And there's so much comfort in that line. Because that line's not for Neil. It's for Vincent's yeah. heartbreak. Like, this is a moment where he says that it's for Vincent. I told you I was never going back. Because it's, it's, sim- it's like the... What do, you, what do you call it? It's like that... It's like the, uh, this is the French phrase, like fade to complete. It's like, it's like, this is it. You know, this is the, this moment, I'm, it was going to happen. And Vincent's heartbreak, he's like, I told you I was never going back. Like, I told you if I was boxed in, we would have this exchange. And one of us yeah. would have to make a choice. And paired with then the gesture, the, the, the gesture, the, Oh boy! We can't even say it. We're gonna start getting uh, we're gonna start getting choked up here. The handful paired with the, the the offer of the hand. Um, it's like you did what you had to do. You do what yeah. you do. I do what I got to do. I do what I got to do. And and I and, and another thing that I really appreciate, and I feel that a lesser creative or maybe a less engaged creator or maybe just someone who doesn't quite understand his characters and their interiority as perfectly and ably as man always seems to i love that there's no anger on on macaulay's part he's not angry he he like there is a there's a part of him or not a part of him all of him like he, he briefly looks down with that great kind of de niro sneer at his own wounds but then when he when he sees Hannah coming, there's no anger in his eyes. It, it's it's total understanding. There is no there's no self deception. These are two men who are completely aware of 
again, they're, because they're the only two men alike, as man has said, they're the only two men alike in this universe or like each other in this universe. Macaulay totally understands why this is how it had to end. Yeah. And, and there's no there's no anger. There's no resentment. There's simply I told you it had it was going to end this way or that way. And it ended this way. And it could have gone the other way, but it went this way. And I told you this is this is one of the ways it was going to go down. And uh, he's not angry. He doesn't even seem all that disappointed. He almost seems relieved that it's he almost seems relieved that he knows and that he can finally stop with uh, the Jimmy, you know, what Jimmy McElwain told him on the yard uh, you know, years ago about what to do when the heat comes around the corner. He no longer has to live by that ethos. He's free because there's there's nowhere to run now. The, the running is over. And I and that's such a great touch. And again, I feel like so many other filmmakers would have done something different or maybe a little bit more glib um, or a little bit more emotional. But what is so great about this is that it's hugely emotional but entirely unsaid. And yeah. it's just... It, it, because nothing has to be said because these are the two men in the universe who uh, who would understand and who totally get what just happened and the weight of what just happened. Everyone else is going to get the L.A. Times newspaper headline version of, you know, uh, robbery suspect shot and killed, uh, you know, in, in foot, foot chase outside of L.A.X. or whatever. But these – Hannah and Macaulay t- understand – and accept this on a level that that no one else can or will, and that's that's the beauty of that sequence, and why, again, what a perfect choice it is for De Niro just to kind of nod and and you know, as, as you said, just extend that hand so that he's not for the for the last few moments of consciousness that he has in this universe, he's not alone. Yeah, the gut punch for me is, um, and what actually moved me, um, uh at the beginning of this episode and continues to move me about this movie is, um, is just the reaction on Vincent Hanna's face is Al Pacino's face. So a lot of people in this show and we've myself included, we've, we've had fun with Pacino's performance. We, we laugh at his, at the loudness about the, the cadence, the, the lines. Which I'm going to come back to. I yeah. have a bone to pick some no, of you about you, this. You can, you can, you can totally pick it. We've, we've, we've made fun. We've poked fun because we love it. We love uh, but, but sorry, I've poked fun because I love his performance. I think he's he's outstanding. He is the he's the the pressure release of this entire movie is resting on mm. his shoulders because of the weighted focal intensity of De Niro. And this is like a great again, it's great casting from Bonnie Timmerman. It's great craft from Man himself and working with his actors. It's like De Niro is doing the very best thing that for De Niro and Pacino is working in the very best corridor for Pacino. And so in this moment, we actually just get to see how profoundly good he is at emoting and conveying emotions and being small. And so when his face turns up and looks off into the middle distance, and it's literally on two hours, 45 minutes, the 165th minute, as it climaxes, this the scene, I'm actually looking at the frame right now, the weight, the emotional weight that is on his face and in his eyes is the gut punch that kills me every time because he feels like this is the fulcrum of this universe and he has now got all of the weight the minute that he accepts that hand and he and he knows that he's going to he's going to be there for neil's passing and the score is swelling and he's just reacting to the moment he's he said his final words he's ever going to say in this movie and he's just there forced to 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 let the emotion and let this epic pour out of him i just i think that pacino there, there is 
that the people have already said every great thing you can ever say about Pacino, and a lot of people want to like you know poke fun now at his later career and laugh at what he's doing. I just don't think there there are maybe two other actors probably in American cinema ever who are as good as him, male actors. Um, and in this moment, I just don't. I think it's one of the greatest moments of his later career or in the middle of his career. Um, and I, I, I just am flabbergasted by it at every moment. It's a, it's a, it is a tutorial. It is a lesson um, that just continually, you know, is, is a re, it's a new lesson every time. If you're an actor or an aspiring actor or a filmmaker, you know, you should be watching Pacino to just marvel at how good he is, um, and and you should be marveling at how the how it's blocked, how it's lit how the director has, made, has given him the space to make the choices that he's making um, and everything, the music, it's just, oh my God, it's unbelievable. And, you know, it's interesting that, just to, to take a, a brief Pacino detour, um, because I got a lot to say Good. about some of the jokes. Um, <laughs> for, it's, it, is, it is something that I think he's quite underrated at is, you know, he just he does have one of as, as silly as this might sound. He has one of those faces yes. that is meant to be seen. Um, f- well, it doesn't flicker anymore, but uh, I'll, I'll 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 date myself by saying you know uh, he has one of those faces that deserves to be flickering at twenty four frames per second on a giant screen in a big dark room. The those weird heavy owl eyes and uh, the, the the weird way his his face seems to gather and collect shadows yeah. and almost man- move the shadows around on his face like they're muscles. And it, you wouldn't think that an actor would be able to essentially repeat one of his most iconic ending performances, but he does it here. If you think about it, one of the greatest moments in American cinema ever. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. This is, is why you're on this show. <laughs> the ending of Godfather 2. Yes. And Michael Corleone is sitting on that bench and he's lost uh, he's lost his wife, he's lost his parents, he's lost spoiler, I guess, he's lost uh, his brothers, uh, his children are ghosts to him. All he wanted to do in his mind was protect his family and he was just smart enough to realize that his life was a tragedy, but not smart enough to ever know how to escape it. And he conveys all of these very weighty ideas sitting on a park bench on the fa- in, in his family's compound in Nevada. It's, you know, cold winds are blowing and he's just kind of rubbing his upper lip and thinking and trying to go back in his memory to where he, if, if and where he can pinpoint where it just went wrong. And no words are spoken. He just sits there and he thinks. And that is one of... And definitely in in the running for the greatest ending in American cinema. And no one mentions the fact that he basically does it again 20 years later, just as ably, just as devastatingly. He's standing there in the darkness of this American night, uh, this the sky literally just roaring above him and holding the hand of a the of a dead man who was the only person with which he could actually identify on this planet. And he is now totally alone. And he, when he's staring ahead, he's staring ahead at another 
30 or 40 years of life that are essentially going to amount to, well, now what? Yeah. And that he can convey that as ably as he does and beautifully as he does. To do that once in an actor's career <laughs> is, is Academy Award worthy. Not that that matters, but uh, it's nice. But but the fact that like he did that once to such an iconic, unforgettable and immortal degree to then swing back around twenty years later and do it again, and no one no one busts his balls for like oh well this is this is the ending of Godfather too uh, because they're so enamored and they're so hypnotized and galvanized by the emotional power of this guy just staring into the night. Yeah. As you said, there's, I don't, I would add, I would disagree with you. I don't think there is any other American actor that could do that. Even the one that's pretending to be dead, holding (laughs) Pacino's hand in this scene. And I think Pacino, especially in the kind of post sea of love, eighties and nineties stuff, I think he, and sometimes it's his own fault with with stuff like you know Devil's Advocate, which is I guess a fun movie, but it's something. He's having a lot um, of fun. He's having a lot of fun. He, in that he's he's having a blast. Um, but he's wonderful in The Insider, which is only a couple of years later. That's true. That's yeah, true. That's wonderful. True. Man, man is kind of like his Macaulay, and that man <laughs> brings out the absolute best of what Pacino can do. He yeah. he does bring out the absolute best in this man. Um, but yeah. It, it just kills me that he is able to take a three-hour crime movie, uh, which has deeply existential themes and uh, philosophic inquiries, and he's able to he's able to distill it into a stare. Yeah, and, and, and just and 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 man, of course, rightly knows. Well, this is where I, this is where I end this thing. This is you, you can't do better. No, don't you just love that like two of America's greatest films and filmmakers had the balls to rest. And with Coppola, essentially at that point, it's six hours of epic. (laughs) It's six hours of epic until that point. And Coppola's like, I'm just going to leave it up to this guy's face to show you the collective, you know, the, um, the collective weight, the sort of exponential calculation that got him to this point. And, and, and he's, you know, savant-like mind that got him all the way here and now he's like just calculating and having to bear like to, to wait with it he's, he has to imagine himself taking advice from his father he has to imagine himself at that dinner he has to imagine himself he has to imagine himself you know taking the reins he has to imagine himself all those ideas and being coached towards the end of his father's life. he has to imagine everything that has led him to that point and he just there's there's something so brazen and fucking cool. It's just exactly what it is to be a filmmaker that has that much amount of confidence to go, do I need to say anything glib? Do I need to say anything else? Or do I just let my performer project and let you project and have this exchange? Like I feel like I've watched this second of this movie I don't even know how many times I've watched this movie. I have no idea at this point. But just looking at his face, I'm like, my God, he's on, he's, he's on another level. And with this film, with all that's happened before, all the, you know, the kinetic gunfire and explosions and guns and thunder and all, to essentially end it with a man who's doing, in this moment, what we know he is damned to do for the rest of his life, which is which is 
to consider all that's happened and all that's led up to this and ask himself, was there any way I could have done this so that it ended differently? Yeah. So that McCauley didn't die. Is there any way I could have prevented this ending? And kind of the tragedy of his fate is he's going to be spending the rest of his life never being able to come up with a cal- with a with a a calculus that ends with a different number than this right here, nice. which is the number one, just him alone. There's there's never an equation that's going to end with two, and you get the sense that this is the re- this is the rest of his life, this this moment, this night. Whether he stays with Justine or he doesn't, he probably won't. Whether he remarries for a fourth time, whether he retires, which I doubt he will. No. Nah. It's every day of his life, regardless of who he's chasing after this, it will never it will never matter as much because at least in on one of the sub levels of his brain, the the eternal uh, hamster on cocaine running on a wheel. <laughs> is just going to be going over what we saw in the last three hours over and over and over again, feeling for a seam in the wallpaper, looking for any kind of crack to go, if only I had zigged here instead of zagging, if if only I'd gotten to Hugh Benny 30 minutes earlier. 30 minutes earlier would have made the difference. This, that, the other thing. And If, only, he's always we, if the, only we could have plugged a leak in Vice who's leaking stuff tonight. If only, I, like, you know, as in, like, yeah, exactly, information's exactly, been leaked, exactly. you know? If, if I... If only Neil took the first bait. If only we got Chris, then how could we have yep. leveraged to get Neil like an, another way? And I, I think that that's the alchemy of it, right? Because he's going to be trying to do an equation where he doesn't know half the numbers. Like he, yeah, there, there's exactly. like there's like an algebra. There's going to be A's and B's, and there's not. He's not going to know what the. He's not going to be able to retrofit any other equation because there's all these random things that happen, and it's all on impulse, and it's him assuming that he knows Neil, and it's like at the end of the day. He actually did know Neil. He knew him well enough to know that one of these things might get him. And the yeah. last Hail he Mary. Know, he didn't know which one. No. But he knew one of these things set up one of them might catch him. Might, might snare him. And he yeah. knew that if he was going to go for Wayne Grow, that he was going to do it slick. He was going to get in there. He was going to get out. And he needed to lay a big trap. And he, he did it. But you know what's so wonderful? It's like the anti-hubris moment. It's like, what if I knew exactly how to get what I wanted, but I didn't actually really want it? Like, like you, yeah. you're so good. He's worked his entire life. This is the great and just blossoming and beautiful tragedy of this movie is that this guy is so good. His entire life has been working towards a foe that was worthy of his his increasing aptitude and his way that he can just catch people like he's taking down people left and right his whole crew's feeding off his energy his insight he's like firing on all cylinders he gets this guy who's challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge it's a prize fight he comes down to this moment and it's like you know it's there's one phrase actually a great phrase from another la um uh, movie american history x and the question is asked has anything you've ever done made your life better and he's asking that question right now. <laughs> Has anything you've done made your life better? And in this case, he's doing he's doing a service. You know, he's 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 helping people who are he's helping people who you know are, are the victims of, of criminality. And he's he has sleepless nights and he's haunted constantly by that thought of being able to do more. And but I just. The thing that I just adore, adore, adore is that right now, like, what does that amount to? 
<laughs> and that's that, that brings up an interesting point because we've been talking about it and everybody else talks about it. It's the first thing anybody talks about when they talk about heat is the similarities between these two men. Yes. You know, they're just they're just alike. They're just alike. And then, yes, in a remarkable number of ways, they are alike. And, you know, there's even, you know, and not even in a joking way, but, you know, it's almost a cliche now that people call heat a love story. Yes. Um, between Because there's that mutual recognition uh, between these two people. And to some degree, you know, I don't disagree. You know, what does Vincent do when... Justine makes it clear that she's going to cheat on him. Does does he try to stay and work it out? No, he goes and he has he he has a drink with Neil. And what what's, <laughs> what's Neil do when he sees the heat coming around the corner? Does he jump in the car and try to get out of there with Edie? No, he abandons her and resumes the predator and prey relationship with Vincent. Um, that that said, for as as many similarities as there are uh, between these men. Uh, what you ha- how you were just defining Vincent as this man who's kind of compelled towards goodness yes. and uh, lawful righteousness, which, as I'm saying that phrase, it sounds like a Dungeons and Dragons phrase. But um, <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have six there, points there, of lawful righteousness, please, yeah, for this next there, character. There are similarities between them, and I think we see the height of that again in the uh, the Kate Mantellini diner conversation. The 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 fact that De Niro and I'm smiling now just even thinking about it when De Niro and Pacino both share those knowing smiles when you know they're both saying you know I don't much know how to do it or I don't know how to do anything else and I don't Neither I don't do much I. want to either uh, but that that also that that moment is so as important as that scene is for a myriad of different reasons and it is one thing that always grabs me about that sequence is it so highlights both the similarities of these two men in that moment where they both reveal to each other that that smiling, like we are, we are what we do. We are what we're after. And, or in Neil's case, you know, I, Neil is kind of, he is who is after him. Yes. Um, because he, he defines his life in response to the maneuverings of men like Vincent, you know, to, to the degree that Neil's life is like this Vincent shaped outline by the end. But, as, as important as this, the, the diner sequence is for revealing how these men are the same, it also is also the, like the shatter point where we begin to see how different they are. Yes. Uh, and that, that those differences um, are, re- are revealed, not to double back on anyone's episode, but they are revealed in these men's dreams where Hannah is weighted down and motivated by a recurring dream of all the people he can't save. Uh, staring at him with you know with that, with that great that really evocative you know staring at him with these these black eyeballs because they got eight ball hemorrhages from the head and yet this is a dream of of pain and uh, unselfish regret for those he could not save but then when in this moment of incredible heightened intimacy between these two men where they are being totally honest perhaps more so than they've ever been with anyone else uh when neil confesses his dream it's one of total selfishness absolutely Uh, whereas vincent is lamenting all of the men and the women and the children he could never save like for instance wayne grows victim that we see earlier in the movie um neil is lamenting all the minutes of his own life 
that he could not save. You know, he's having a dream about not having enough time, as he says. And it's in that moment, for as much as we, we like De Niro and is charming and cool and peak De Niro handsome, yes. you know, with that one of the few men that kind of makes a goatee work. No offense to any goatee <laughs> listeners out there. It just doesn't work. No. Nah. Um, unless you're De Niro in like 90, circa 95. Um, but um, Vince, in the, as much as to, we love... To quote, to, quote my, to quote one of my best friends, Maria Lewis, in the 90th and live episode of Heat, I was not prepared for how attractive he was. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that, yeah. Li- that line stuck with me. All not all all however many episodes it is now you know seventy odd episodes ago that uh, really cracks me up still to this day I was not prepared for how attractive De Niro is in this movie. You know I hate when my friend I know we're getting off on a thing here. I hate when my friends some of my friends that you know I shockingly have a lot of friends that don't like Heat. Like I'm the guy in my group of friends that that everyone kind of jokes likes all the macho noir bullshit and that they're like this 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 movie doesn't understand women because what woman would would put up with this horse shit and I'm like this Edie character makes no sense I'm like well, have you have you seen De Niro in this movie I mean have you seen the man this is like peak handsome but anyway moving on we're getting off on a thing here um, these dreams reveal the uh, this intimate ex- intimate exchange of dreams between these two men really begins for me in the film to reveal just how different they are from yes. one another. Vincent is an honorable man. While there's there's no doubt that he tastes this kind of ego-driven satisfaction from capturing his man, whoever it is at, the, at any given time, his dream of these victims drives him to prevent any more people from joining their party. Yes. Uh, he might thrill from the hunt, uh, as Justine points out, but his ultimate goal is the preservation of lives other than his own. Yeah. Whereas Neil is a total sociopath, oh, and his agree. goal, Neil's goal, is the preservation of his own life above anyone else's, and for him to to keep and to hold whatever minutes he has left that weren't already squandered in what is it seven years in Folsom. And however many he was in McNeil before that, um, Hannah, he you wishes to, to become a phenologist. <laughs> Hannah wishes to preserve his angst uh, because it keeps him sharp on the edge where he's got to be. But Neil wants to free himself of that angst. And for as one of the things I, I, I wanted to get into was just for as much as these men are similar and they are like they are alike in so many ways to the point that, you know, they are the only two men that understand each other. I also think that it's a misconception that they are exactly alike, that they are these twinned forces. And I think that's what a lot of uh, heat ripoffs miss the point of, miss the point of is that they're the perfect mixture of similar yet different. Yes. Because, because and, I think it's about manifesting, just to go into your point, it's about, it's about how their instincts manifest. So that, that, dream sequence is so important and evocative because they're both having the same dream. They're both having the dream that they don't have enough time. But yeah. in your sense, you know, in, in your way, and this is where, you know, Chris, even Christopher Nolan's, you know, heat sequel that wasn't really a heat sequel, Insomnia, you know, this is why that's wrong is because Vincent Hanna, for at, to his own detriment of balance and life and maybe happiness is compelled to do the right thing under any circumstance. 
And it might mean that his career is shit. It might mean that his his relationships are shit. It might mean he has to move cities. He's divorced. He's paying alimony. Whatever you know, um, he's he's gonna do the right thing. And it might mean sleepless nights. And it might be you know in 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 the background of this movie, chipping cocaine to make sure he can stay up twenty <laughs> hours a day. Like if if you believe it or don't, like this guy is a guy who is. You know, he, he he needs he needs 20 coffees a day to function at this level. Uh, but to exactly your point, Neil's ends are selfish ends. Neil's control of his crew is about his protection. Neil's yes. control of his crew is about, um, is about making sure that people, like, you know, one of the things I just thought about, and it's so weird to, like, go back to an, an older minute just in this moment is, the moment that Neil has a sort of come to Jesus, you know, some people use that phrase, like come to Jesus moment with his crew around, are we going to do this or are we not? Like, are yep. we going to get out of here? When Chris shows the right amount of angst and desire and need and almost like desperation that he needs to do this score and it needs to be successful so he can get out, Neil just accepts that. When Michael, who is who's got enough stakes in the freezer when it might just be some flippant, you know, the action is the juice. Neil gets the impulse. He's already smells that Michael is weak. Like that conversation yeah. is for weakness. It's a weakness test. It's like, are you going to do this? Are you the right guy to do it? You've got a lot of our money from our scores. You've got the right amount of money. Are you going to do, you know, are you going to be here? And similarly with trail, I like, trail like, yeah, let's do it. Like there's no, there's no scenario there, but I, I just, I feel like, you know, there's all those moments that you get to clue back in to see all the things that he does differently. And like you said, not enough time, instincts. He wants to have no morality. And I think we've seen here where Vincent doesn't hesitate. It's to protect a life and hopefully not endanger others. And when Neil doesn't hesitate, it's to blow through armor. Like he just has no... Yeah. He, 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 it's, yeah, I, I think while they're so the same, it's just so funny. Like this is what's so great about it. It's about, I think they follow the same patterns of instincts, but they manifest themselves so differently well that's that's I, i'm glad you mentioned that because it's something i've been thinking about a lot i i rewatched the film for like the billionth time oh last week uh because Don't i just to be... wish you had an internal youtube counter of how many times you watch stuff like i <laughs> i wish really i had curious. it like i wish i had an inter- this is the only thing i need to be, i think cinephiles where, where we're going to get caught into skynet is we're all going to get chips movie nuts and film twitter when we can watch a movie and it just automatically logs a rating and a, and a viewing on our letterbox like that's when it's going to be we're just going to sign up like sign me up so that i don't have to write on letterboxd anymore that said i i do think there's one Michael Mann film I've watched more than this one. Oh, yeah. And I do think I, – I've probably seen Thief twice as many times as I've seen Heat. Yeah. And I've probably seen Heat ten times as many times as a normal human being would watch. <laughs> Still probably like a hundred times less than you. Um, but I, I, I rewatched the Heat again, yet again, because I wanted to be sharp and on the edge uh, for this for this episode. I was watching it last week. And one of the things that I was really thinking a lot about this time, walking away from the movie, um, and I think it was shaded a little bit by, I think it was Jordan Harper's episode, who just knows so much more crime shit than the rest of us, and is so just so ace about that kind of thing. I, I believe it was the 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 Wayne Grow deleted scene episode yes. that you guys did yeah, together. Yeah, Jordan Harper and I, yeah. And he mentioned something I had never really thought about before, but ever since then, I haven't been able to unthink it, and it really shaded my my viewing this last time around. And that is, 
um, he, when he was talking about how similar of all people Wayne Grow and Macaulay can be. Yes. And he said something that I've, I really stuck with me, which is something to the effect of, and I should have gone back, but I'm lazy, and I should have gone back and gotten it verbatim. He said something to the effect of, you know, we were talking about the kind of control and the, the, the rigor of Macaulay's process and this ascetic way he lives his life. People who are already in control of themselves don't need rules like this to yes. live. And one of the things that I've been thinking about vis-a-vis, let's say, misconceptions of heat, you know, since we're talking about that and, you know, how maybe Macaulay and uh, Vincent are also a little bit different. One of the ways that I think that they are so different, as you, you, you were saying, they both kind of follow the same process to different ends. I don't think that the process is organic for Macaulay. Uh, and I do think it is for Hannah. And I think that one of the uh, the misconceptions of this film is that it's the story of this super ice cold criminal motherfucker and the uh, wild ass out of control cop who chases him. I think it's actually the other way around. And I think that Neil is wildly out of control and has always been out of control. You know, we know that he's been sloppy enough that he's been pinched at least a couple times in the past and gone he's gone for some pretty serious stretches serious at least stretches. at least a decade um in two of the most serious uh, uh maximum security prisons in America <laughs> yes and so like and, and and he even he even was uh 3 years in the hole in Folsom which i mean i mean he's he's serious he he's real deal he's he's seen some shit uh, and he's done some shit um he's taken some hard falls and um, when he talks about uh, Jimmy McElwain to Chris, uh, you know, the whole, you know, you want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing in your life that you can't walk away from in 30 seconds, if you spot the heat coming around the corner. Um, he says these words like they have this almost talismanic power for him. Like he's someone who needs these words to be true to protect him from what he knows are the worst aspects of himself, the aspects of himself that probably did get him busted in the past, that did require him to go to some kind of, I love this uh, uh, man vernacular, to a gladiator academy and learn from someone who's probably already, who's probably doing a life stretch and is just there to give advice. If anyone wants to listen, you know, a Nate kind of figure uh, who's willing to teach. And um, he, he, he repeats these those same words to Vincent in the diner, and he says them almost kind of rote, the way a really religious person will kind of rattle off the Ten Commandments. Yes, and he's but he but, but he says them as someone who needs these words to be true. He clings to them, and so when I look at Macaulay and De Niro's performance of him. This this ethos that he has, that he forces himself to live within, uh, it's it's persona as prison or or a prison of a persona. Yes, um, he says, "I am never going back," and we we know that you know for the most part, you know, he means I'm not going back to Folsom. I'm not going back to McNeil. Um, but in order to never go back, he's had to build this self-imposed prison. Uh, around himself so that he can make moves within it and then make an ultimate breakout 
by the films by in his mind the films in this this breakout of self yes and that's why the scene that I always talk to you about uh, the scene in the tunnel which I don't I, that episode hasn't aired yet and I'm really looking forward to it um, that's why that scene with he and Edie driving through the tunnel is so. I know I keep using this word this episode, but it's so galvanizing. Uh, we are watching as a man releases himself from his own mental shackles and escape from this prison that he's made himself because he is out of fucking control. Yes. And so I, but but I think it's also in that way then that it's a, it's a misconception to think not only of Neil as this cold ass Alain Delon type because he's not. Um, it's also a misconception, I think, to see Heat as a heist film. I think this is this is the story of a prison break. It just happens to be an internal one. <laughs> yes. And, I, I was just going to say, there's a great... If people want to watch, there's a an ultra-marathon runner right now. Her name's Courtney DeWalter. And there's a documentary on her 38... It's only 38 minutes on YouTube. It's a brilliant little mini-doc about... You know, people running 200 miles in 48 hours, like the physical turmoil that people put through there. And there's a sound grab from Joe Rogan uh, talking about her because he just interviewed her on his show. And he goes, and someone's like, God, for someone to torture themselves like that and to be that good, you know, they've got a demon. And Joe Rogan says this thing. He goes, he goes, hers isn't a loud demon. I didn't see it come out when I spoke to her. It's there, but it's a quiet demon. Right, yeah. and I that phrase, it's there. The demon's there, but it's a quiet demon. I think is exactly, it's like that. It's almost, you know, all the way back uh, to, you know, sort of nineteen thirties baroque horror of like you see a man break out of like the mantra, like people who like fitness junkies or whatever junkie is your jam. But like, let's say a fitness junkie, you've got something driving you. And Neil's thing is like the overwhelming mantra of this movie. And in this minute, it's like, I was never going back. And so it's like, I'm never going back to myself that got pinched. I'm never going back to the hole for three years. I'm never going back to these maximum security bullshit. And the demon that's driving him is this mantra. I've got, if I stay to this discipline and if I stick to this, I, I will survive. It, it's a survival mechanism as well. And it's it's that weird, you know, and Shawshank Redemption exploits it as well. It's that weird thing of like he's had him and, and Frank in Thief does it. He's in a self-imposed prison of discipline to maintain survival at the detriment of everything else in his life. But unlike Vincent, who's doing it for angst, which you're talking about, um, you know, the, the next piece, uh, and I totally agree, it's like this guy, is, he's fucking like he's just murdering people like left and right you know, i tell you what i, I tell you I, I tell you what i don't do i don't sell medals like how cold-blooded <laughs> is fucking that I tell you what i don't do i don't sell medals like this guy's a fucking nutcase and or so, uh how he describes his best friend's death you know it rains you get wet like that, that he writes off a, a, a father and husband's death uh it rains you get wet you know this is what happens but yeah, I, I think he's absolutely a person who is constant. You know, I don't think without his rules, he'd be. He'd, I don't think he'd be Wayne Grow. I don't think he'd be out. You know, raping and killing sex workers or anything, or or being a member of like the Aryan Nation. But I do, I do in a way think that yeah, I think, um, <laughs> I think he'd be an amateur. Uh, thrill seeker doing liquor store holdups with a born to lose tattoo on his chest. You know like, what? To get pinched for that much time, he would have been a thrill seeker liquor store holdup. Yeah, with a born he, to yeah, lose he tattoo had to do something. 
he'd have to do something heavy, but without the level without the level of intense planned out methodology that he has now. He would be, you know, he'd be a cowboy looking Hol- for anything heavy. Holy shit! And the fact that and, and, wait, you know, wait, 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 we have to pause. Wait, he fucking was that guy. Yeah, he was the idiot doing thrill seeker liquor store hold ups with a born to lose tattoo in his chest. That's what landed him in the Gladiator Academy. And that yeah. affirmation, Vincent gives him an affirmation. Do you see me doing thrill seeker liquor store hold ups with a born to lose tattoo on my chest? And he goes, No, I do not. And he goes, Right. That's yeah. that that's the point. Right. I'm never going back. And there's a pride in his face. Right. There's a pride when he says you... that very De Niro frown smile, <laughs> eyebrows eyebrows halfway up his forehead. Right. this is the only time i've wished this is the video podcast not when i was uh breaking (laughs) up earlier travis is travis a pretty there's a pretty solid high eyebrow de niro face that uh travis just did for us well you know i do what i can i do what i can um (laughs) but uh, in case in case any snarky so-and-sos out there are disagreeing with our thesis or my thesis i'm gonna assume you agree um to to speak to this kind of out of control do, uh, nature um, of Macaulay. I, I actually I feel like man, he's never talked about this, and this this is something I would love for someone to ask him at some point. But and I, I don't think I've ever seen it done. But there is a scene in towards the in the third act of Heat, and you know I try not to be one of those people that loves a director so much that sees something that could be a mistake and tries to attribute. A huge amount of weight to it yes. but i think this is done very specifically because man wants us to notice that he does something he shows us uh the study in contrast there are two elevator sequences in the third act of heat um there's one with uh hannah going up to check out uh to to see what's going on with hugh benny and to brace hugh benny and then that's followed uh a little bit down the road by an elevator scene with Neil going up to kill Wayne Grove. Heat checking his weapon in the corner. And they both, they both, yeah, they both perform um, a brass check, which is you slide, uh, uh, you slide the, uh, you pull the, excuse me, you pull the slide back slightly, you look in the ejection port, and if you see the brass of a cartridge, uh, you, you know that you're chambered and you're ready to fire. And Vincent performs one just almost like textbook uh, when he's, he's got, two, it's, he's barely even looking. But it's like military. This is a guy you can tell. This is this is a guy that was a marine. Um, he does it without thinking, but it's preci- it's precise textbook textbook and completely safe. Now, man goes out of his way to show us that he even cuts to a, I, I believe an insert of of uh, Vincent doing that, which makes me think. Okay, there's a point to this. He wants us to notice this process. He's drawing our eye to it. He's directing our eye to it. Jump ahead to a similar sequence when Neil is all alone in the elevator at the Hilton. He's going up to murder Wangro. He also performs a brass check to make sure he's chambered and ready to go. If you watch that sequence, hey, you know, maybe De Niro just fucked it up, but I, I believe that man it is put so- the Hannah sequence in and he put this sequence in for us to notice. When, when, when Neil does it, he has his entire fist around the fucking muzzle of his gun. Uh, with his thumb in the trigger guard. And that is exactly what a thrill-seeker liquor store hold-up idiot kid <laughs> And I, 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 
I don't know that 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 scene really struck me. You know what? It's so funny because it hasn't aired. It hasn't aired yet. But Jordan Harper does the hundred and fiftieth minute of the show, and you talked about Jordan's previous episode, and and Garth and Stu, um, uh, uh, Garth Franklin and Stu Q, you know, veterans of the show, come on and do one hundred and fifty one, and that that elevator sequence slash that brass check is is sort of happening over those two minutes, and Jordan said exactly the same thing. He recommended. Um, it hasn't aired yet, so Travis hasn't heard it yet, but he recommended going to the internet movie gun database because there are boffins on the internet who said that the brass check is that Neil, a thing? Is that, wait, is that a thing? The internet movie, movie gun, gun database, data? right? And there's a huge heat thing in there. And they say this exact thing, that Neil McCauley's brass check is the least safe brass check <laughs> I mean, his fist is right over the the barrel of that gun. Like he can blow his finger. It's insane. And I and when I when I saw it this time around, it, it speaking of Jordan again, hell, this guy's t- walking all over my minute. Um, well, I guess I'm walking over his. Um, but that's the first thing I thought of was when that episode of his with with Wayne Grow, and he was just talking about how only someone who's just a fucking mess and out of their minds would need a system like this. And I think we see it in this moment that this is the wild-ass maniac of the movie. It's not Hannah. It's it's always been Macaulay. And now we are seeing him unleash like a pathogen, just killing people willy-nilly, walking all over. He's driving all over Los Angeles, sh- shooting people. And yeah, and I, and I have to believe um, that... And I, I went back and I listened to the commentary and he didn't... The man didn't mention anything about it. But I have to believe that he would only pause to give us the insert of... Hannah's textbook version of that brass check and then contrast that with Macaulay, who has all the time in the world in this elevator ride to do it right, just does it like a goddamn maniac without a care in the world. Like, he just doesn't care anymore. And, and, and I really feel like that to me, those sequences back to back really underline the biggest mis- misconception of this movie to me anyway. Uh, I don't want to sound like a pretentious gatekeeper or something. You believe what you want to believe. Believe <laughs> what you want to believe. I, I, I think that, that, that yeah, it's actually the reverse. And um, as we said, you know, I think it's it's an easy misconception because I think Pacino, you call it fun. Um, he's been having fun. I think I might call it self parody. Uh, you know, Pacino's self slide into maybe self parody has been a little bit louder and earlier and more googly-eyed than De Niro's. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and I think when people think of Hannah now, they think of, you know, great ass and give me all you got, give me all you got. Um, But I think as the elevator scene shows us, he's actually the cool-ass Jean-Pierre Melville Melville character. He's he's like Alain Delon in The Cop. Um, I think he is someone who is always in complete control. And I think that the the big bombastic moments that, that are funny. They, they are funny. Um, they're all I for purpose. They all have a purpose. They, yeah. And I asked people they, when he's loud, this is my pressure test of how many times people have seen the movie. They're like, oh, da, da, da. And I go, look, how many times have you seen it? And they might say a couple of times. I go, cool. So when is Vincent being loud and brash and silly? Every single one of them is in some kind of interrogation sequence. He's he's always bracing someone he's, he's, when he's, he's when he gets that gets that point. Yeah, he's bracing someone. He's being he's fired up, and then there's only one moment in his calculation with poor Ralph, right? Like it's Ralph, sit down. <laughs> like there's like that one moment, but that's totally ex- like 
that's the that's the most mild reaction one could have to that situation. Yeah, you know, you yeah. Know, Xander Berkeley's douchebag sitting on your couch after just bowling your wife, making him feel good as he jokes. <laughs> like um, having that reaction is like that. That's it. You know, that's the um, that that's that. But all the other moments. Then when you examine all those other moments, which we've gotten to do on this show, you're seeing again a guy who's controlled but like sleepless. He can't sleep. Because the yeah. pursuit is there, he's he's driving himself to a level of like madness and angst and pressure and putting himself in this heightened state constantly because because he just can't live with he can't live with more innocent people getting hurt on his watch. If he can put someone away, he should be putting them away. Yeah, exactly, and that's why I almost get annoyed now when people defend. Pacino's performance as well. They said in the 20th anniversary screening, he's he's chipping coke. He's you know, so it's 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 all cocaine frenzy. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's, that's these, these, these kind of these these high contrast moments of this kind of like uh, what the hell, vaudevillian manic uh, madness. That they, they are a tactic, and it's him throwing off whoever he's leaning on. You know, be it the the brothers Torina or Hubini or the best one ever with Marciano. Um, it's Pacino. I really like the brothers Torina, though. That's uh, just... Get killed walking your doggy. Get killed walking uh, your doggy. Uh, <laughs> it's Pacino giving this insanely precise and nuanced portrait uh, of an equally precise and nuanced cop who is always fluctuating his persona so that he cannot be read as easily as he reads everybody else. Yeah. And I don't think is he, I, I think he can be funny, but I don't think that Hannah is a comic figure. No, I think that he's he is as tragic a, fi- a figure as Neil. And I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm gonna backtrack that. I think he's more so than Neil because um, when the film leads us back to its moment of conception, the, the the big bang amidst all the the flashing lights and the the landing planes, um, when these two men they engage in, in lethal combat, Neil will kill his opponent and move on with his life. Either he'll track down Edie and they're going to go to Fiji or he'll relocate to Chicago or New York or Atlantic city. And he'll begin his process all over again. He'll rebuild his prison so that he can make moves on the street and he will create a new goal for himself, whether it's realistic or not. Who knows if Fiji was ever really a real thing for him or if it was just a, a target to throw a dart at to give himself a direction because he's a madman. I think he's ultimately kind of directionless and he has to give himself these arbitrary goals. But anyway, (laughs) Neil is a man who will kill the opponent and move on with his life and begin the process anew. But as we see, Hannah is totally out, totally with the, why he is so tragic to me is he's totally without self-deception. He's going to do the right thing. And he does, uh, by putting Neil down and, in doing so, as we keep hammering and hammering and hammering, he murders the only person in this universe that makes his angst bearable, mm. both in the act of pursuit and in the knowing that finally he is not alone. And when Macaulay dies, it's, you know, with his, with that perfect reminder of, you know, I told you I'm never going back. Um, and Vincent's kind of stare into that into that that distance yeah um it's a it's a it's a stare and it's a moment and it's a look and it's a it's it's a lifetime now of irrevocable loss and as we were saying earlier uh or as i was saying earlier i can't think of another actor 
even De Niro himself, who would have been able to do a better nonverbal job in evoking that kind of poetic pop existentialism and the cool groove machismo that would be a parody in anyone else's hands. I just can't think of another actor or another face that could capture those those dual engines of, that that are at the heart of Michael Mann's work than than Pacino. And I think that 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 weight that weight that he gives that is ultimately the true tra- tragedy of the film. And I know that there's the, the debate. You know, who do you want to win? Who do you want? Do you want Macaulay to get out? Do you do you do you want Hannah to get him? You know, I, I as much as films are empathy machines, and De Niro is one of our greatest performers, so we kind of do want him to escape. He's not the tragic figure of the film, and this scene shows us that Hannah is the heartbroken center of this film because he is compelled against his own desires. You know, the difference between the ultimate difference between him and Neil is Neil's acting in. Uh, Neil's acting in service of what he wants. In service, exactly. That's where it's like he's at, Neil is acting in service of his desire, whereas Hannah is acting in direct opposition to what he wants. And um, he, Hannah's willing to that, give up that, everything that he ha- everything that he wants, everything that he could possibly need. He's willing to give yeah, it up. Exactly, and that's the tragedy of Vincent Hannah. And it's something that, uh, as we're sitting here. Uh, I'm gonna have to fan myself when I get too emotional, but um, it's Justine was more right about Hannah, I think, than she ever knew. She meant it as an insult. She meant it as kind of a fuck you. But go back, and I, I guarantee you, someone—I bet someone's done this on YouTube, and if they haven't, they should. Um, go back and watch this final chase amidst all of the um, the power generators and the lights flashing. There's a there's a moment where Vincent slowly just kind of comes out from behind one of the boxes looking around and he's looking at the ground. He's looking for, he's looking for shadow and remember what Justine said to him when she gave him that kiss off after he bailed on her at a party. Um, you live, you live among the remains of dead, dead people. people. You sift through it's the really detritus, trying. you read the terrain, you search for signs, signs of, of passing for the scent of your prey and, and then, then you hunt, hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committed to. The rest is the mess you leave as you pass through. And the look on Pacino's face when this minute ends is the look of a man who realizes he's going to be living in that mess for how, how, how much time he has left. Mm-hmm. And that's why, for me, the best character in this film is Vincent Hanna, uh, the most admirable character in this film is Vincent Hanna and the most tragic uh the most tragic character in the film and I think in all of man's filmography is is this cop who's just standing against the twilight with his only friend and loved one in the world dying and holding his hand and in fact we'll go let's go further let's go further and we'll just say that he has just murdered his significant other Big time. Um, Big Justine time. is not Justine is not his his significant other because uh, you can't say that these men these two men uh, they only have their women and I don't mean that as pejorative 
and I don't mean that as like a, a possessive, uh, even though Neil kind of calls Edie, you know, I have a woman. I have a woman. Um, uh, it's they because you can't call Justine and Edie their lovers because neither of these men love these women more than they love the pursuit of what they're after. And you can't call these women their partners because Trito and Shaherlis and Drucker and Bosco are their partners. And you can't call them their significant others because for Vincent and Hannah, they are each other's most significant other Person. being in the universe. Uh, the entire shape of their lives is determined by the other by the other man. Vincent lives the way he does to catch men like Macaulay, and Macaulay comports his life the way he does to be the best as he can at eluding the chase. And when he loses that chase, and he dies, and leaves Vincent alone, there's nothing left for Vincent to do. And as, just as Justine says, um, now that it's over, now that the, the ultimate heightened chase of his life is over, the rest, the rest is just the mess he leaves as he passes through. Michael Mann, Michael Mann once said about Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, he said, no other picture captures the poignancy of the last of. Of aging, of the pathos of Twilight. And I think in this unheralded high art that is heat i think he nailed it so ladies and gentlemen i don't think there's any other way that i we we should or could end the 165th episode of one heat minute the 165th minute the penultimate minute i'm looking forward to the final episode pre-credits uh and i just want to thank uh, immeasurably thank um, the incredible guest that I've had for helping me through this episode because he literally helped uh, help me through uh, so much. The inimitable and awesome and uh, and sharp motherfucker that is Travis Woods. Travis, <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of the show, mate. So so long, brother. You you take it easy. You're home free. We'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute, just around the corner. And maybe, just maybe, might be the man. <laughs>